morning. It is uh, good to be here with you, and it is, uh, uh, just let me say thank you as uh, one of the staff members of the Simeon Trust, uh, work that you all support. Um, it is, there, there are not many churches that support us. There's lots of individuals, and thankfully there's a growing number of churches, but it is of profound encouragement to me to be with a church that supports uh, a ministry here in Chicago that's really a ministry around the world uh, that trains pastors to handle the Word. It's a great joy to be uh, friends with your pastor. I don't know if you know this, but you got a good one. So you should, you should be grateful. Um, so it's uh, been a great privilege to uh, get to know Eric and serve Eric and serve you. And today we're going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians. I was asked to preach from this book, which is helpful because it's one of my favorites. And uh, I'm going to pray for us. Please pray for me. I don't know you very well. And one of the big challenges of preaching to people you don't know very well is trying to be helpful. And uh, so would you pray for me as I pray for you that I would be helpful to you and that I would be faithful to God's word as I seek to do it. So let's pray. God, we want to hear from you this morning. So we pray that you would speak and that we would listen. And that in listening to what you have to say, we would believe and do it. Today and for the rest of our lives. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be in 1 Corinthians 3 today. Small section at the end of this text, running from verse 18 to 23. But before we begin, I want to just begin with two numbers. 700 million and 100 million. 700 million and 100 million. That is how much money Michael Burry gained for his investors and himself. 700 million for his investors and 100 million for himself in the housing collapse of 2007 and 2008. As documented in the book and subsequent movie, The Big Short, Michael Burry made a fortune by betting against the housing market. Here's the thing. The entire world thought that Burry was a fool. One of the dumbest people on the planet. Now, everybody knew that he was a prodigy, especially when it came to finances. So it was particularly burdensome on everybody. Why would somebody so brilliant do something so foolish? Everyone was sure he was wrong. Right up until the moment that the markets crashed and he won 
for himself and for his investors almost a billion dollars. All of a sudden, he didn't look so foolish. I wonder, do you ever think if the way that you're living your life is wise? You know, when it comes to like your job or your savings or your lifestyle. It doesn't matter where you come from or what you believe this morning. I think that I can confidently say that we all want to be wise, right? But I wonder, do you ever consider if you're wise about your stance towards God? And how that would, should, does affect your life. Or how it affects the life of this church. This morning, we're going to learn that there is a wise way to live. And that pursuing it, or ignoring it, means everything. Let me read it for us. 1 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 18 through verse 23. You can find it on page 896 in your pew Bible. This is what God's Word says. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. The title of the sermon this morning is the uh, quote-unquote foolish way to wisdom. And very simply this morning, here's what I want to argue. Pursuing God's foolishness is the wisest thing you'll ever do. Now, maybe you already know that, but it's good to be reminded and convinced again. Now, maybe you're not a Christian, and I'll concede that pursuing God's foolishness may sound like craziness. Just give me a second. Like, what if, what if? God's foolishness is the way to wisdom. And what if pursuing it is the wisest thing you'll ever do? Now, you might be asking the question, well, like, what the heck does that even mean? Like, to pursue God's foolishness is wisdom. I'm glad you're asking that question, because this text is just seeks to answer that question. We're going to look at this text, by the way, of two problems. We're going to spend most of our time on the first problem, which is in verses 18 to 20, and the problem is the problem of self-deception. I mean, you might ask, okay, so what does it mean to be wise? And the answer is, well, it looks like becoming foolish. And whatever Paul's about to say, you just got to know this, he's not suggesting it. Right there in verse 18, let no one deceive himself. It is a command. Don't Kid yourself. Don't be self 
deceived. Per usual with commands, you only have to say it if you think there's a problem. Paul is not wondering if anybody in the Corinthian church thinks they're wise in this age, as it says in this text. In other words, wise, just like all the people around them. If you were to just read chapters 1 and 2 and the first part of chapter 3, you learn very quickly that the Corinthians have a wisdom problem. They are all about pursuing the wrong kind of wisdom. They are wrapped up in self-deception. And by the way, if you read 4 and 5, and you keep reading, which I would encourage you to do today, you know, I don't know what you're going to do after church, so let me give you a suggestion. Read 1 Corinthians, and essentially, don't be like them. Uh, it's real, real easy. Like, whatever you see them doing, don't do that thing most of the time. But you can kind of sum it up all in this statement. The Corinthians are radically self-deceived. And by the way, according to chapter 1, the Corinthians are Christians. These aren't like those people out there. This is a church that Paul planted. So if you like also, like if you're like frustrated with your church this morning, just read 1 Corinthians and thank God for Eric and just all the other members here. Be like, never mind, this place is great. Because while I'm sure we all struggle with self-deception, this church is wrapped up in it to the hilt. They're enamored by great public speakers fighting over who is the best leader and tearing the church apart in the process. Pursuing the wisdom of this age may make sense. It's all a rat race. You've got to fight your way to the top and you've got to find the best leader. But it's not what Christians are supposed to do. Here, Paul is, in essence, beginning by saying, Hey, stop it! Whatever you're doing, don't do that anymore. You need to go in the opposite direction. Why? Because they're deceiving themselves. They think they're going after wisdom, but it's foolishness. Instead of going after foolishness, they should go after wisdom. Well, what in the world is this foolishness that is wisdom? When he says it right there in 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. What in the heck does that mean? What does it mean to become a fool that you become wise? I mean, that's not usually the way it works. Like if, if, you're, if you don't have much familiarity with the Bible, know this. Most of the time, the Bible is like work hard and get paid and put food on your table, and you'll be doing the right thing. Or somebody's in trouble, you should help them. That's the way the Bible is usually written. In other words, it just makes sense with the world that we live in. But every once in a while, thankfully, because if that was all it was, it'd be pretty boring, every once in a while you get this passage that makes you think and go, hold on a second, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Again, I'm not, I'm not a philosopher or anything, but getting... Wise by becoming foolish. How does that actually work? Well, Paul, thankfully, has actually already told us. What is the foolishness that leads to wisdom? Well, according to chapter 1, verse 18, Paul has said, For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness. Or chapter 1, verse 23, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. Friends, catch this especially those of you that are Christians, 
Christianity will never be normal. It is always and perpetually weird. And just hold on to it real strong. If somebody goes, well, that Christianity thing that you believe in, that seems rather strange. You should be like, I know, right? Like, it's way crazier than you even think. I think sometimes we get defensive and we go, no, it totally makes sense. And if you're like, well, wait a second, what's, what's the whole foolishness of the cross? I don't even know what a cross is. Get this. Here we go. Let's rehearse this thing. Let's all rehearse together just how crazy Christianity is. There's a God who created everything, so that's something. And you're here because he exists. Since when? Since always. And he just spoke and it all comes into existence. And then we decided, because we're geniuses, that we would be like him by disobeying him. Which worked just about as good as when you were four and your parents said, don't eat the cookies, and you said, watch this. And you're like, oh yeah, I used to be really foolish when I was four. Look, this probably happened last night. Your wife was like, don't eat the cookies. And you're like, watch this. <laughs> the amazing part is, is that at the moment that that happens, God goes, okay, there's going to be punishment for this, but I'm going to fix everything. By the way, we haven't gotten out of the first three chapters of the book. And then this big part right here is essentially God going like, look, I'm going to put the pieces back together, but it's going to take a minute because you people need to learn a lesson. There's ups and downs and it's a roller coaster. I'd encourage you to read the whole Bible. Believe me, it's way stranger than you could possibly imagine. And what ends up happening is that people over time realize that they can't fix the problem. And God goes, I'm going to do it. I'm going to fix everything. That sounds pretty good. How? I'm going to send somebody. You go, that sounds pretty good. And he's going, to, he's going to be the king of the world. He's going to save you from yourselves. Then the craziest part of the story is that he comes. You know what his name is? Nailed it. Looks like Jesus. It smells like Jesus. It's Jesus. And when Jesus comes, he's born of a virgin, and God's his dad. You go like, wait a second, that doesn't make any sense. I know. And he's a real human being, and he's also 100% God. And you go, that doesn't work mathematically. I know, but that's what it is. And if you're a Christian, that's what you believe, and it makes no sense. And then he does exactly the right thing his entire life, which also doesn't make any sense. Because you don't, and neither do I. And they keep wanting to make him king, and he's like, no, you don't get it. You see, I'm going to fix everything by doing the one thing that doesn't make any sense. You can't fix it, so I will. And I'll do that by dying. And you go, hold on a second. Like, that doesn't make any sense, because that's not the way things are supposed to go. And by the way, these are like the 12, this is Jesus' posse, his, his, his guys who are following him all over the place. They keep saying, okay, we keep hearing you're going to die and everything, and rise from the dead or whatever. I don't even know what that means. But like, no, that's not the way this is going to go. At one point, Peter, like the right-hand man, the leader of the 12, gets called Satan, which I don't know what your nickname was growing up, but it was probably not that great. Because Jesus says, you don't understand how this whole game is played. Peter makes all the sense in the world. He goes, no, 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 no. Like, here's the thing. You don't, you're not supposed to do that. That's not the way it's supposed to go. Eventually, Jesus, the one who does all the right things, improves through 
signs and wonders that he is exactly who God was going to send to fix it. Well, the people who should have seen it are the people who string him up on the cross. Because they go, no, you're not exactly what we were looking for. Ironically, they speak way better than they know. They, they call him over and over again. And they even put like a piece of wood that's over him that proclaims, here's the king of the Jews. It's the only throne he'll ever reign on on earth. Is a cross to die on. Kind of looks like wisdom for a second, at least for one guy. The least likely guy in the world, a Roman centurion, watched Jesus's, he watches him die and he goes, that's the Son of God. Now, if I was standing next to the Roman centurion, if I was one of the 12 disciples, of course, none of the 12 disciples were there because they were too scared and they just all ran away like men. Nowhere to be found. I would have told the centurion, well, no, I don't think you quite get it. See, I thought he was the Son of God too, but like, that's not what the Son of God does. You don't die. And for three days it looked like it was a complete joke. That is, of course, until Jesus gets up out of the grave, alive and goes, see, I'm the king of the world. And it's at that point that everything foolish starts to look wise. You see, Christianity is so hard to understand in one sense because it both tells the story we all want to hear, but it tells it in a way that doesn't make any sense. Jesus come, Jesus conquers, Jesus reigns. That's the story we would understand. But Jesus come, Jesus conquers, and he dies. That doesn't make any sense. It's, it's foolishness. But it's the way to wisdom. crazy it just happens to be true and let me be honest this foolishness is not easy to pursue why because let's be honest i don't even think we need to have a show of hands this morning i'm guessing that none of you likes to look like an idiot right me neither like at all in life being a fool can be social suicide in the midst of burry's financial play against the housing market before the crash he kept losing money. And I don't mean like losing $10. I mean losing tens and hundreds of millions of dollars of other people's money, rich people. And I don't know if you know rich people or if you are rich people, but guess what? Rich people like money. And they got incredibly angry with him. He... he they destroyed him. At one moment, deep in the crisis, when he had lost billions of dollars and would not change his mind, and everybody was telling him, you must change your mind. I want my money back. What have you done? He was locked away in his office, and he wrote his wife, it feels like my insides are digesting themselves. Do you know the feeling? Here's the thing. Paul is demanding that Corinthians do the foolish thing that might lead to such a condition in ourselves and that we should do it on purpose. 
Why? Wouldn't that be awesome if Siri just preaches the rest of the sermon? (laughs) Why do something that looks like foolishness to the degree that other people might be so opposed to what we say that we actually physically react to the foolishness? Well, it's because according to Paul, Christians are actually pursuing that which is wise. You see, this is just the other side of the coin that he's been flipping since the beginning of this letter. God's wisdom is foolishness to this world. But this world's wisdom is foolishness to God. There's a significant difference between those two statements. It's that the world is wrong. Tragically, many, many people, maybe even you this morning, use the fact that humans are pretty smart to think belief and trust in God is foolishness. When you think like, look, if we can land people on the moon, then why should we believe in God? It's true, humans are super smart sometimes, but think about it. How often have we used our smarts to destroy other people? You just have to think about weapons and warfare, and you've got a lot of really smart people creating a lot of harmful stuff. Not only that, but even the best of us can get things tragically wrong in spite of our brilliance. I mean, what do you think led to the 2007 and 2008 market crash to begin with? A bunch of brilliant people who missed everything. Just because we're smart doesn't mean that we are wise. Here's a test. If your wisdom leads you to disobey God, you're a fool. It's as simple as that. It's a great way to test whether you're wise or not. As Paul notes in verses 19 and 20, like, this is just the way the world works. He's going to quote two things here in verses 19 to 20, if you wonder what that stuff is in quotation marks. The first one comes from Job chapter 5, verse 13, and the other one comes from Psalm 94, verse 11. Both of these are very interesting. In Job 5, we have the first speech of one of Job's friends, Eliphaz, who is arguing that it is incredibly foolish to think oneself wise because no one can be right before God. And therefore, Job should just repent from his sin and be blessed. Now, it is true, verse 19, he catches the wise in their craftiness. That's a true statement about God said by one of Job's supposed friends. Here's the funny part. By the time you get to the end of the book of Job, you know who has to repent? Eliphaz. It's in an incredible humor of God. Uh, even fools can say the right thing sometimes. But as he's pointing the finger at Job, as we're watching the play of Job, we go, oh no, this is going to come back on you real bad. And it does at the end. If that weren't enough, then we have Psalm 94 for good measure. Psalm 94 is a profound psalm of lament. 
The wise of the world are wreaking havoc on God's people. And the psalmist is asking for nothing less than their destruction by God. The section in verses 8 to 11 is directed at evildoers, and the psalmist is asking them, hey, do you think that the one who made ears doesn't hear? Or the one who has eyes doesn't see? Thus, verse 20, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. They are futile. I mean, shoot, he made your brain. The psalm ends, he will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord God will wipe them out. Friends from Job 5 and Psalm 94, we learn this. God has set up the world in such a way that any wisdom that is not in line with his wisdom is bound to fail. That's just the way the world works. By the way, if you're a Christian here today and very worried about the state of our world, don't be. Like in one sense, it should lead us to lament and kind of be like, man, I can't believe we're going through all this. But listen, the wisdom that's opposed to God is going to fail. I don't know if you read the book. If not, you should keep reading from 1 Corinthians. Read 1 Corinthians and read all the way to the end. We win. Just I know I gave away this spoiler alert, but like, we win. That which is opposed to God's wisdom cannot ultimately win. It is an incredibly comforting truth. But it's also an exhortation. Because if God's wisdom always wins, then I better align myself with it. Friends, avoid the problem of self-deception. Trust that pursuing God's foolishness in the saving work of Jesus is the wisest thing that you will ever do. And to be clear, there are real-world ramifications if you don't do this. We've seen in the first point that there are serious problems with going against the wisdom of God that looks like foolishness. But there are also problems with others. We've talked about the problem of self-deception in verses 18 through 20, but then there's the problem of boasting in others in verses 21 to 23. Now, Paul here is really summing up an argument that he started all the way back in chapter 1. He's been working on this for a bit. He gets right back to where he kind of started and goes, look, verse 21 Let no one boast in men. That's where he lands. He's been on this for a minute. Now, it makes all the sense in the world in light of what we have just learned. Paul has said the wisdom of the world just won't work in God's world. So Paul is saying, now, so don't do the foolish stuff that you're currently doing. The wisdom of this age might be that pursuing division on the basis of rival leaders is a good idea. I mean, look, it's uh, 2023, it's about to be 2024, and so everything is heating up right now. Good old fights breaking out amongst all kinds of people about who the next political leader is going to be. 
And it's a real fight. It makes sense in the world that people would go to war about this stuff. Let me just ask you, friends, if you consider yourself Christians, how is the fighting going? Is it producing a lot of good unity these days? I mean, shoot, even if you're not a Christian, does that really look like wisdom to you? Essentially, all it is is a race to the bottom. Like, here's the thing. Maybe you think Christianity is really foolish and hard to hold on to, but what are the options? In the Corinthian case, the men boasted about in verse 21 are church leaders. And this is blowing the church apart. It's what rejecting God's wisdom produces in a church. Now, from what I hear from your pastor, you all are in a relatively unified spot. I guess we'll figure it out because the church budget was just voted on. <laughs> but from what I hear, the church is, this church right now is in a pretty decent spot, right? All right, great. So, congratulations. Stick with it. I hope that for the rest of all time, you know, Eric already prayed that we're all going to die. So that was encouraging. And I hope that until you do all die and me too, that this is a unified church. I really hope so. But like, listen, I'll give you the secret on how to destroy this church in one easy step. All you got to do is start fighting over who the best is and who the worst is when it comes to church leadership. Of course, if you do that, you're a fool. So take that. The most interesting thing about Paul's argument here is the why. Why is it that we shouldn't do that thing that we're so prone to do in the world, fighting over the leaders, and I'm going to find the best leader, and then I'm going to be wise because then he's the best, and if I can be against you and... Makes sense out there. Doesn't make sense out in here. Why shouldn't we go after that, though? Well, simply put, according to Paul, we shouldn't do it because the Corinthians already have everything they need. Right there, verse 21. Look at it. So let no one boast of men, for all things are yours. You might think, well, hold on. Like all things? Just keep reading. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, those are the church leaders. And then he keeps one-upping it, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is in God. Great. It's, it, it's over. You've got, you already have everything. Like, friends, if you're Christians, do you, actually, do you believe that? You have everything in Jesus. You already got it. So, like, can you imagine? Like, you have, you have, apparently. Remember, the foolishness of the cross, Jesus wins, King of kings, Lord of lords, Savior of the universe. You are going to live with him together forever. Like, if that's true, you know how dumb it is to be like, well, I, think, I think Eric is the best preacher. No, I think Eric is the worst preacher. And you're like, seriously, we're all going to be under King Jesus forever, and that's already true. Why are we fighting about this? Here's the thing, it's a tragedy to live like you don't have something 
you've already got. You ever meet those people who have a lot of money and live like they're nearly homeless? It's not just irony, it's actually really sad. Or, 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 or the people who keep trying to lose weight because every time they look in the mirror, they go, no, I just got to lose a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And they're killing themselves because of it. You're like, what, what is, you, you've already got, what are you doing? Same thing is true when people in church fight over the dumbest things humanly imaginable. Friends, know this, the way that you live your lives together demonstrates profoundly what you believe about God. Like, apparently, this church is doing pretty good when it comes to being unified, which hopefully is a sign that you believe what God says about what you have in Jesus. Just know this, if that goes off the rails, like it was in Corinth, They were living, this is why it was so problematic for Paul, as if what was supposedly true of them in Jesus wasn't actually true. How you live your life together demonstrates whether you really believe you have everything in Jesus or not. How is it that the Corinthians have everything? It's because the Corinthians have Jesus. And keep reading 1 Corinthians again. They've got a ton of problems. They're threatening to tear them apart, but the solution is always the same. Realize what you actually have now, and then live in light of that. All those who trust in Christ belong to God, regardless of how smart you are, regardless of what your status is in society. That's the great part about church is, like, you should have people walk in here. If you're, like, a member of this church and you're like, oof, like, I'm a member of this church, but this church is full of weirdos. You don't have to raise your hand if you're like, I believe that, right? (laughs) Then you got something going on because when somebody walks in the door who doesn't belong to this church, they should be like, this, hold on, I don't understand this. What... Why, why these people? And you're like, I don't know, they're a bunch of weirdos. And I'm a weirdo too. But we do have this one thing in common. We've got Jesus. And so because we have Jesus, and because of Jesus we're all gods together, then like, we can, we can, like, I would never hang out with these people, right? Like, good church is like when you're like, ooh, I got no reason to be friends with these people. Necessarily, except for that whole God thing. But because of the God thing, Brothers and sisters, the radical equality of blessing in God through faith in Jesus is what drives us to avoid division and boasting in others. You know, if you're not a Christian, like, don't you have to admit that God's foolishness kind of looks like wisdom? That like it's... The way the church should be is actually the kind of world that you want. 
and the kind of world that so often we're striving for? If you're not a Christian, I'd encourage you to hang out here for some weeks. I won't be here. It's probably a blessing for you. But hang out here and watch to see if it's true. And by the way, if you're Christians, know this, your lives are on display. Especially when it comes to this unity stuff, because it's easy to be like, oh, I love my brothers and sisters. And it's like, oh yeah? Let me watch. Because this should be a tangible thing amongst us. I pray this church is a beacon of the foolish way to wisdom in the world. I pray that you all would take heart because your small actions of unity in a divided world are part of what it means to proclaim God's wisdom to the world. The world might think you're crazy. But hopefully at the same time they will also be attracted to your foolishness what they consider to be foolish, and also the saving work of Jesus. Regardless, friends, know this. Pursuing God's foolishness is the wisest thing that you'll ever do. Let's pray. God, I pray for this church That as they continue to strive for unity, that they would remember what that unity is based on. It is based on seeing what the world claims is foolish as wise. It is based on saving and reconciling work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It is demonstrated to not be foolish by way of a resurrection. Lord, for those of here who might not be Christians, I pray that this stuff that kind of looks like foolishness, but also kind of looks like wisdom, would compel them to consider the claims of the Bible in order that they might come to know the wisdom that is found in Jesus Christ. So would you help us all to revel in the fact that we have everything in Jesus. If we would only trust in Him, It's in his name that we pray. Amen.